Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. How do media narratives shape people's perception of the business environment in Africa? This question is at the heart of an innovative research project by Africa No Filter called the Business in Africa Narrative Report. The report identifies and defines several dominant frames that Western and African media invoke when covering issues on the continent. And these frames can lead to narratives that are often distorted from reality and harmful to the business ecosystem across Africa. And that, in turn, can have some serious implications for peace, security, and development across the continent. Joining me from South Africa is one of the authors of the report, Moki Makura. She is executive director at Africa No Filter, and we kick off discussing why she believes such a report is necessary before having a broader conversation about the methodology and significant findings of this research project. I'll post a link to the report in the show notes of this episode, and it's well worth a a perusal. And it also is something that caused some self-reflection by me, as you'll hear in the conversation. And today's episode is produced in part with the support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York. And as always, please visit globaldispatches.org to contact me if you have suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover. All right, now here is my conversation with Moki Makura, Executive Director at Africa No Filter. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. We're a narrative change organization, and what we look at are the sort of persistent stories and frames that are often reported um, about Africa and its and its fifty four countries. So, business um, is such a key part of Africa's development. You know, it, it's going to it's how we're going to um, you know employ people. It's how we're going to create revenue to you know, to build um, this continent. So business is a key um, thing that we look at. We wanted to understand what the narratives were around business. You know, could we be doing um, or could we have more investment on the continent? Could we be doing more business internally or with other countries? And I think um, as far as we had seen, nobody had expressly looked at narratives around doing business in Africa. There, there are a lot of reports about, you know, the ease of doing business in, in Africa. There's a lot of indicators and indices that are measuring, you know, very tangible things. But narrative and story is different, and it is actually what we do. Um, and I think one of the key things that we realized is that there, there wasn't um, anything definitive that looked 
at specifically narratives around doing business in Africa because we know that there is a correlation between storytelling, stories in media, and investment. The studies that have been done that look at investment on the stock exchange and when, once companies have, got, um, have been covered in media, and it usually leads to overinvestment rather than underinvestment. So we wanted to understand the same for Africa. So that's a very long-winded way, Mark, of telling you why we did the research. So can you explain a, a little bit about how you went uh, about measuring narratives, analyzing and identifying narratives? Like what methodology uh, could one use, did you use uh, to to compile your data for this report? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's a pity that we haven't got Richard on because Richard was the actual researcher. So I'd hate to speak for him because I know he spent hours on this. But what we did was we looked at keywords we looked at the kind of stories, we looked at the frames and then the resulting narratives. Narratives by definition are the, the, the effect of different stories told over time, persistent stories. So if, you know, and in the report, we highlight sort of seven sort of frames that are, that are consistently told when you, you look at words like business, Africa, in any kind of story. And we looked at both international and, you know, African media as well. So, when, what, you know, what Richard did was that the keywords that came up consistently, he analyzed them. And he used um, a database called GDELT. So I think it was something like a, I think a quarter of a million stories that he looked at. So it's quite a comprehensive um, research exercise that he did um, over, you know, obviously a, a fixed period of time. But, you know, the resulting frames are what we, we, um, we examine and we talk about. And those frames, in a way, lead to specific narratives. And the narratives that, you know, generally I think are written about Africa is that somehow Africa is broken, that Africa is dependent and Africans lack agency. And those were some of the narratives that came through um, as a result of the frames that, you know, we can go into more detail. Yeah. So, so what would be like one example of a frame that leads to a discrete narrative? Okay. So one of the um, frames that I think we sort of led on was the fact that there's this sort of, you know, scramble for Africa once again. That's how international media specifically are covering um, business in Africa. They They tend to cover business stories in Africa from the lens of international companies. So it's not so much about tech in Africa. It's about what is Twitter and Facebook or, or Meta doing in Africa. And you could argue, well, they're global media outlets, but they're global. They're not American um, necessarily. Um, they're, they're covering, these are global stories. These are, um, they're covering. Um, and I think the important thing is that we've identified is that the persistent telling of a, of a, of a story of, a, of business in Africa through these sort of international companies implies that there's very little actual activity that's going on in Africa. That leads to that narrative for me of Africans have lack agency, that we're not doing business, that if, you know, Twitter wasn't here or if, you know, Meta wasn't here or, you know, name another, you know, Apple, name another big you know, company, there wouldn't be a lot of activity so those are the kind of frames and the resulting narratives that we've sort of identified. So it's basically like Apple or Facebook or name any big company, even maybe like extractive companies. You know, Africa is just like a venue for their competition as opposed to a place where like a whole ecosystem of, of business activity exists. Absolutely. That's how international media cover it. Yes, that's what we identified. Yeah.
can you maybe walk me through some other key findings as well? Yeah, I mean, look, I'll, I'll tell you just because the, the report covers a lot, but there are kind of three things that the report really threw up for me. One was the power of media. You know, I know we say it a lot, but window, but media is the window to the world for so many people. You know, when we talk about Africa, people haven't been to Somalia or, you know, or, you know, in some cases they haven't been to Nigeria, but they have an understanding of these countries through what they read in the media or what they see in the media. So that's the first thing that this report showed me, that media is incredibly powerful in terms of influencing where investment goes, who gets it, how much they get. You know, why is the cost of money so much more expensive in Africa? It's not because of anything factual. It's because of perception people have. And these perceptions come from things people read and see and watch. And that's what I mean that, you know, the power of the media actually influences people's behavior. And that's why that's the first thing that I realized. The second thing was that there's so much missing in the way stories around business are told on the continent. So, you know, I'll come to what is there, but what is missing is that there was very little about the young entrepreneurs who are actually making things happen on the continent. I mean, how many times have you heard the stories of, you know, Africa's a very young continent and you know i mean often it's called the ticking time bomb but we are a young continent so if you're talking about business how do you not include young people young entrepreneurs another thing that we saw was sorely lacking in fact it was something like one percent of the coverage we saw was about the creative industries Nollywood, the largest or second largest movie producer in the world, sits in one of an African country, sits in Nigeria. And a lot of that stuff is not being covered. And I think creativity and culture, it's one of Africa's biggest exports. People are listening to Afrobeats, they're listening to our music, but not writing about the business of entertainment or the creative business. That's something else we, we, like, we saw wasn't there. Um, and the third thing that we saw wasn't there was just, if you were not Nigeria, and you are not South Africa, or even Kenya, you just didn't get a mention. There are 54 countries in Africa. And a lot of the time, global media particularly were only covering stories that came out of, of South Africa, particularly, and Nigeria. And that's a disservice because countries like Mauritius, Mauritius ranks number one on the index of ease of doing business, not number one in the world, but number one for Africa. You know, countries like Botswana, incredibly wealthy company, um, countries well run, um, Namibia, you know, but they don't feature in any of these stories because of this fixation on these big markets, South Africa, Nigeria. Yeah, the, um, as you said in the report, Africa is two countries, yeah. <laughs> which was yeah. a, a really shocking finding. Yeah. I mean, it's better than Africa being one thing. Well, exactly. This is like, this is, I see, like at least a, a moderate step forward from what the right. dominant media frame might have been 10 years ago, that Africa is a country, now at least two countries. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was a wild finding I, I found. Right. And, and I'll just say the last little thing that we saw in the, what's missing was this thing about, you know, the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement. It's the single biggest, I think, opportunity for Africa. It's for African countries to trade with each other. We realized there was, le I think it was something like less than 1% of coverage in both African and international media. So it wasn't just international media that we're ignoring, you know, the biggest thing that's happened on the continent, but actually African media as well. And, you know, there's so much money that's been pumped into that. 
that, to get almost 54 countries to agree on one thing. It's been phenomenal. And, you know, unless media interpreting it, how do entrepreneurs know how to engage with it? So there's a big, big gap there because that thing will not be successful unless it is interpreted and broken down by media for your average entrepreneur to engage with. So that, that yeah, I would say that that point on the African continental free trade area, which is the largest free trade area in the world by measured in in, in mm-hmm. you know, population served, that it got so little treatment by the media, despite being this you know very ambitious uh, project. It was another, I think, interesting and, and fascinating and kind of disheartening finding of your report. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'll just say the, the, the last thing, because I said there were kind of three big things that this report showed me, the power of media, what was missing. But what was there, you know, was really, you know, it's, it's things we've talked about. It was kind of three things, one of which was, you know, the heroes in the stories about business in Africa. It's what I alluded to. They were American or British companies. They were European companies. They were the heroes of the stories. And we were just the backdrop to which their story was playing out. So that was how, you know, that sort of, you know, bothered me a little bit. What would Um, be an example of, of that in practice? No, no. Again, it's to the point I made that, you know, it would be a story about Apple um, Mm. or like a or, or Meta opening an office, or you know, remember there was a story where Twitter was opening up in Ghana, for example, and they, you know, how did Nigeria feel about it? But it wasn't looking at what, why they even necessarily opened up there. What was the business opportunity? What, 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 what their, what the impact of them moving in had done to the business community there? They didn't sort of look at the next Twitter or, you know, people who were using Twitter as a platform. It, it, it was a story about the American company. They were the hero of the story, and that is problematic. If you're looking at this coverage as a way of opening up business opportunities or investment opportunities on on the continent, these stories are not doing that for us. And we want stories to do that for us. So there's one case study you cite in in the report on coverage of coups in Africa that frankly, like hits close to home for me, uh, because you know, the frame that I used after the most recent coup in Burkina Faso in late January was one that you identified as particularly harmful, uh, which is, you know, this question of why are there so many coups in, in Africa recently? When, mm-hmm. you know, and I interviewed, you know, to, uh, you know an, an African expert on peace and security issues to discuss this issue. Uh, but, you know, as you rightly point out, uh, that framing is is harmful. Can you explain sort of that specific case study around you know this media coverage of coups in Africa, of which I am uh, a guilty participant? <laughs> well, Mark, I'm very I'm very glad that you were able to put your hand up to that. But I actually wrote a, a piece about the way media had covered these um, six coups in five countries in eighteen months. And the issue that we are sort of highlighting around it is that the way it's been covered as an interesting data point, six coups, five countries, 18 months, means that you are covering six coups in one story. If you look at the near coup that happened in the US, there was blanket wall-to-wall coverage of every nuance, everything that could possibly have happened to explain to the world what this was about. When you cover a story like that. You're not giving any space to the nuance, to the reasons why it happened, um, because you're looking at the data around the, the, the trend. And I often find that stories around Africa are covered as trends. 
you know, as opposed to let's look at, you know, individuals that have suffered. Same thing that, you know, we, we're experiencing with the coverage of the Ukraine war. We become numbers um, as opposed to like, let's look at the individuals behind the story. And also my last point on this is that, you know, your average news stories, maybe 500, 800 words. How do you cover six coups in 500 words? That's less than 100 words. So how much space do you actually give to the issues that are happening in that country? And that's what we're saying. There's nuance. There's context that is therefore missing. You just don't have the space to tell it when you're trying to tell the story of six coups. True. I would say, to, to my credit, the podcast format gives opportunity for, for nuance. We did go into depth, and, and one point that was elicited from that conversation was the fact that coups are actually very rare since the advent of the, the African Union uh, across the continent. Um, but that kind of leads me into a question I would sort of be interesting in having you, you grapple, you wrestle with, which is, you know, what is the connection you see, if any, uh, between the findings in your report and broader issues of, of peace and security in Africa. Is there a connection between, say, media narratives around investment in Africa and peace and security issues in Africa? Well, look, I mean, I think absolutely there is, because I think investment in business doesn't happen in isolation. It happens in the context of that country's environment. You want to bring your money in. You want to know it's safe. You want to know you can get it out. And th that is important. But the, the challenge is that, you know, sometimes when you, you tell a story of peace and security, that becomes the only story of that country. I had been in, you know, sitting in, you know, well, in fact, I'll use an example where I, I, I live in South Africa and there was a couple of, I think last year, late last year, when there was a series of, um, well, I don't know what, what it was, you know, people were, you know, storming shops, they were looting and, you know, the country seemed to have descended into chaos. Now, it was happening in a particular region of the country. Now, if that had been the story that anybody had read about South Africa, the single story they'd read about South Africa, that would have curtailed any potential, you know, look, we're going to do this business because they're reading about an issue in South Africa. The context was lacking that it happened in a particular region, that some people believed it was, you know, politically motivated and actually didn't spill over into other parts of the country. I was sitting in Johannesburg at the time and I was, you know, watching what you guys were watching in America. It made no difference to me. I still did my shopping business and, you know, happened. And that's what I mean, that when you hear about these, you know, security issues, and of course they're more serious ones, but I, I'm, I'm talking about the one I was part of because it was a security issue for the country. People, you know, thought it, you know, that the country was going to descend into chaos. You know, um, Burkina Faso, you know, some of the coups that have happened, some of the stuff that's happening in Mali, you know, there, there are places that are, that are not, that are not deemed to be safe by, you know, by anyone's standards, but particularly by US standards. But the thing is that people do still do business. People still have to eat. People still wear clothes. Economic activity still happens. And some of the bravest country, um, companies are companies that are operating in countries that, oh, my God, are terrible. Look at the mining companies in Zimbabwe. They're not pulling out when, you know, even when Mugabe was there. They're not pulling out. They're making a lot of money. And business is about money. But you do have to have a safe environment. But you have to understand there isn't a single story that guides um, why you invest. You have to understand the market. You have to understand the nuance. Um, and that's the danger. And it's not just, you know, global media I'm accusing. It's all media. African media is equally complicit in this. It's the way, you know, storytelling happens. It's, it's how we receive information and how information is written. 
Uh, so what are some proactive steps that media can take internationally and African media to um, more deliberately capture nuance and challenge some of the, the harmful frames uh, that you identified? What could they do? Like, what could I do? Well, look, I'm going to um, answer that question by giving you an example of the new humanitarian, which is a, a media outlet. And I really like what they're doing. In fact, we like it so much. We've actually, um, African Filters actually funding um, some of this work. But they're going undergoing. They, they listen to the podcast. So so uh, it's music to their ears. Uh, OB, heavy, oh, heavy, uh, <laughs> go right ahead. <laughs> Yeah, they're doing what they're calling decolonizing um, the newsroom. And they're really questioning, um, you know, sorry, there's a lot of dogs in the background here, but they're really questioning the work they're doing, how they're telling the story. And one of the things that the editor said that really sort of resonated with me was the context they're putting into their stories. So you know how when you get to a dinner party and everybody knows everybody else's name, you're a little bit scared to sort of start asking people questions. So you just join the conversation at that point. And that's often what happens with news stories. You've missed all the sort of background and context giving and you join the story at that point. And what they seem to be careful to do is give you context. So for example, the the example she gave was when they write about Haiti. Haiti is the poorest country in the world. And often stories will say that. And if you've just arrived at the dinner party, all you know about Haiti is that it's the poorest country in the world. But they give you the context. They tell you why it's been the poorest country. They can tell you why it continues to be. And that requires a little bit more space, a little bit more research, and a little bit more faith that your reader is going to want to know that information. Uh, well, Moki, thank you so much for your time. This report was fascinating. Fantastic. I'm glad you read it. I hope other people will. Um, and, and the one thing I will um, add at the end that, you know, um, Richard, who unfortunately is listening, but doesn't seem to be able to get on here. He sort of went through a lot of time to do two things, which he really liked. He identified a lot of trends that people don't include in stories. You know, things like, you know, Africa has the fastest cryptocurrency um, adoption rate in the world. In fact, Kenya has the most cryptocurrency peer-to-peer transactions of any place in the world. Things like that, uh, people don't write about them. They don't think about that. There's a whole story behind that particular um, headline. So he's identified 30 of them, even things like these throwaway things that we hear, like, you know, you know, five out of the six fastest growing economies are in Africa. That actually means something. If a country has a very high um, GDP, it's a fast growing um, country, there's opportunity to get return on investment. It means something. But, you know, people, there's a lot of things we don't unpack with this data. That was one thing he did, which I thought was excellent. The other thing he did that was really excellent, that he listed things that storytellers can actually do to ask themselves questions that, am I covering the story correctly? Am I feeding a a stereotype? Am I, you know, writing up a particular narrative inadvertently? Because let's face it, a lot of this stuff is done inadvertently. Um, I'm not saying, you know, Mark, you deliberately set out to, you know, stereotype the continent. It just happens um, because in a way we're used to writing um, our stories that way. Um, but he he asks these questions or he lists these questions that, you know, writers, storytellers can ask themselves as they look at um, the things they're writing in business in Africa. 
All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Moki Makura. That was uh, very helpful and, uh, you know, food for thought for me for sure and a cause for pause and and self-reflection. Thank you to the folks at Africa No Filter for creating this report. All right. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.